All right, well, uh, last week we talked about Christ's impeccability. We uh, began to discuss the temptations, some of the theological uh, contexts behind it, some of the biblical theological connections. Today, we'll actually be getting into the temptations themselves and uh, discuss those. Uh, maybe we'll finish it, maybe we won't, but that's okay. So, uh, if we could, let's open our, our word. Um, I'm going to have the harmony up on the screen. Uh, now, uh, you guys can certainly turn to that. As you can see, there are a lot of passages up here on the whiteboard. That's just kind of a, a selection from what I have here in my notes. Um, certainly not everything. We might not even get to everything, but nevertheless, something will be helpful. The, par- the passages in the parentheses are passages that are not quoted directly or uh, referenced in the text itself, but they are helpful, I think, to provide a, an overall context, and they're just uh, selections. So in any case, uh, Matthew chapter 4, Mark 1, and Luke 4, uh, we'll actually get into the temptations now. So, And as I said uh, last time, I believe that Matthew is the one who actually records these chronologically. Uh, talked about uh, referenced um, sources and how the the terms that Matthew used kind of indicate time, um, or they indicate um, progressing from one event to the next. Um, you see, uh, for example, just to kind of th- quickly uh, review. So Matthew chapter four verse five, you'll notice it says, "Then the devil," right, which would imply that would imply that this was like next in a sequence of events. So after the first temptation of the stones into bread, or the stone into bread, um, then you would see here in verse 8, you see the word again. So again, implying that something happened before this, or this temptation is like another. So it's another sequence of events. And then Luke... um, Luke has his own purposes. Talked about how Daryl Bach mentions about his um, talking about how Jesus's confrontation kind of climaxes in the temple, and that might be why could be perhaps why Luke has the temple temptation last. But in any case, I, I would say that Matthew's one is chronological, especially in view of and reference Bach last week again talking about "Be gone, Satan." It's kind of like a climactic statement, so to speak, right? So I would take the temptation of the kingdoms of the world being the last one. So, all right. In any case, um, so if someone could, um, if someone could read just from the screen here, Matthew four verse three, or from your own Bible, doesn't matter, I suppose. Okay, and so could someone read the corresponding pass, uh, verse in Luke 4? That would be verse, uh, verse 3 as well. Alright, thank you. So, um, notice that Matthew's record here has the plural stones and includes the word loaves, while Luke's has the singular stone. Now, uh, might not necessarily be a... I, I wouldn't say it's a contradiction. It's certainly not. Uh, Satan could have used the plural of stones first and then maybe to up the ante or maybe to focus on a particular stone. Maybe he points to a like particular stone and says, hey, turn this stone into bread. So he could have perhaps said both, perhaps. Um, interestingly, the loaves of bread kind of caught my attention. It's um, the Greek and English lexicon of New Testament based on semantic domains. I've quoted from it before. Uh, it's a Greek lexicon. He uh, talks about the plural form of the Greek word artos. That's what's used here. Um, it is, quote, it's a relatively small and generally round uh, loaf of bread considerably smaller than present-day typical loaves of bread and thus more like rolls or buns, end quote. It's interesting here, though, that in every plural, I looked at uh, every plural form of this word in the New Testament, and it's interesting that this is the only time it's actually stated as loaves of bread, right? If you were to just look at the English text on its face, you would think that there would be... um, 
like corresponding Greek words for, for each word in that phrase, loaves of bread, but actually it's, it's not the case. Interestingly enough, in the plural form, you would either see like loaves, it would be translated, or just bread, which I, I think is interesting. I'm not sure why the ESV uh, translated it that way. I know the New American Standard and the uh, Legacy Standard Bible has it as just as bread. Not sure why they did it that way, just I find that rather interesting. So, yeah, the, the, uh, the original language here would just have the plural form of, of bread. Now, in any case, now let's, let's make another observation here. Uh, G- Satan here is hearkening back to Jesus' baptism. And um, is there any kind of hint that maybe Satan's doing that here? Can you, anything that you might catch that might indicate that? Well, let's give a hint. What does God refer to Jesus as at the at the baptism? I heard somebody say it, I think. Yeah, yeah, this is my beloved son, right? So Satan is kind of hearkening or calling back to that. Um, now, of course, Jesus being God's son, right, is equal with him. And would consequence consequently, of course. If you're his son, right, you're his equal, so if God has the power to turn one object into another, in this case stones or stone into bread, who else would have the power? The son, right? The son would have the power as well. And Satan is, uh, I think, probably just uh, hearkening back to that. He's calling upon Jesus to use his divine power to create by divine command. Now, uh, this might be the easiest question of the day. We'll see. When did God create by divine command? Yeah, in the first day. And the second, and the third, and the fourth, and the fifth, and the sixth, right? Creation. He created by divine command. The temptation here, I think... Is for Jesus to use his divine, and others talk about this, I believe, and others talk about this, and I would agree. I think the temptation here is for Jesus to use his divine power outside of the will of God. Right? Uh, Jesus, of course, has been fasting for 40 days. Is no, uh, the text we said, you know, that after 40 days he was hungry. People have thoughts about that, but in any case, after 40 days he's hungry. And of course, his body would uh, would desperately want food, right? And now Satan uh, has Jesus in a place, or Jesus is in a place. The Spirit led him to a place where there's plenty of rocks, but no bread. So the temptation would be: if you're the Son of God, if you're equal with your Father, provide for yourself. Turn these stones, or this stone into bread. Any other observations you guys uh, want to make before we kind of move on to Jesus' re- response here? Anything you notice? Well, it's um, a, a temptation also to satisfy the flesh, to satisfy the needs of the flesh. You know, and, and it's similar um, to the temptation of, to eat uh, in, in the beginning. You know, and, and this whole temptation thing is, it harkens back to the beginning yeah we know that you didn't mean to say Jesus failed brother we, we, we would we would think better of you of that yes Robert Satan starts by defining the argument and then 
And so there's a lot going on there. Yeah, I would say, and, and what I have read, um, what I've read, they would take the if here as like the since. Uh, teachers talk about how basically this conditional here is kind of, Satan's kind of conceding the point that he is the Son of God. He's not questioning whether or not he is. That, that may be true, perhaps, uh, something to consider. But uh, it is a point, though, brother, uh, you make a good point, is, uh, you know, Jesus in the book of Isaiah is spoken of, right? And he talked about him opening not his mouth, right? Um, there's another passage. Is it is it First Peter? Uh, forgive me. Where it talks about um, when he was reviled, he reviled not. Um, can't if somebody can find that, you can tell me about it after the fact. So you're saying it should be translated. Well, uh, that's what that that's what what I've some of what I read said. So I, I that might be the case. You know, people smarter than me say that. So may may be the case. But then again, people are smarter than me that necessarily mean they're right either, right? And that goes for all of us when we're reading, right? We need to evaluate their argument. Um, not how many letters they have behind their name, right? Or how many books they wrote. Um, although you don't necessarily wash that away either. You just got to evaluate it. Yeah? First Peter 2.23. Okay. Thank you. Thank you. First Peter 2.23. Yeah. So, um, you know, it's funny when... That's not funny. It's, it's, it's remarkable... That when Jesus is accused, right, in the Gospels, you normally, I don't know about exclusively, but you usually will see Jesus saying, basically, okay, you know, show me your evidence. Prove to me I did what you said you did, right? For which one of these good works are you going to stone me, right? Or when they try to get Jesus to conv- uh, convict himself in court, in the illegal trial, on the uh, the night before he's crucified, right? He talked about he's spoken openly, right? Jesus basically says, "Show it to me." And of course, you know his detractors, uh, what they have just ultimately contradicts itself. But in any case, yeah, Jesus does not defend himself just for the sake of defending himself, right? Uh, any other observations or points we want to make before we move on to Jesus' reply? All right, let's look at Jesus' response. Um, verse 4 in both texts, Matthew 4.4 4 and Luke 4.4. 4. Someone read Matthew 4.4. 4. But he said, it is written, man shall not live by bread alone, but by every word of that comes from the mouth of God. Amen. Alright, in Luke 4 4, someone read that. Just a shorter version, right? And Jesus answered him, It is written, and the answer not written by Amen. Amen. So, um, what's some observations we can make from this? Well, Matthew and Luke both provide Jesus' answer. Matthew has more of Jesus' reply, although Luke has has less. Luke doesn't have uh, by, by every word that proceeds from the mouth of God. Now, what is Jesus' response not only to this temptation, but to every temptation? The Word of God. Right? And it's been said, I'm sure in many contexts, in many places, and I think it would just bear repeating, that we could learn from our Messiah here. To refer to the Scripture to ward off the arrows of our enemy. We can't certainly, uh, Jesus is our example. He certainly, uh, isn't our example in any, everything because we couldn't certainly meet up to his standards. But where he he is, he's supremely our example. And he wards off the devil by quoting the word of God. The first passage that he quotes here in this response is Deuteronomy 8, verse 3. Let's actually go there. Let's read it. Deuteronomy 8 and verse 3. Someone read Deuteronomy 8, 3. Thank you, Mr. Key. And he humbled you and let you hunger and and fed you with manna, which you did not know, nor did your fathers know, that he might make you know that man did not live by bread alone. Amen. Now, this might be the most Captain Obvious statement of the hour, 
But Deuteronomy 8.3 comes after Deuteronomy 8.2. Now, you're like, wow, that's profound. Yeah, well, um, the reason I say it is because when Jesus uses a passage, He's also, I think, pulling in the context in which, uh, in which Old Testament passage He's either quoting or summarizing or paraphrasing. And that's important. Look at Deuteronomy 8, verse 2. Look at what it says. It talks about, I won't quote it directly here, but about how God led Israel in the wilderness for 40 years to humble them, to test them, to reveal what was truly in their hearts. As Israel was in the wilderness 40 years, Jesus is in the wilderness for how long? 40 days. As Israel was humbled and tested to reveal what was in their heart, Jesus is in the wilderness for 40 days so that He might be tested and live in humility under the direction of His Father and the Spirit. Tested to reveal what's in His heart. What is the result of Israel's testing? Cataclysmic, widespread failure. There are millions of graves in the sand that prove it. And only two people... Only two people over the age of 20 years old walked into that promised land. Two. Those who were uh, 20 and under, they made it. But their memory probably, you know, wasn't, wasn't that good. Maybe it was. Actually, you can remember stuff from your childhood, right? Yeah. Jesus' test... Not that there was any doubt, but His testing revealed that He did not fail. That He is fulfills and completes all righteousness. If you remember some time back when we talked about the, exo- uh, the uh, flight to Egypt, remember we talked about that, I, I, I referenced... Um, uh, a teacher by the name of Michael Rydelnik, who in a work, uh, the Moody Handbook of Messianic Prophecy, he talks about how the Bible, or the, um, the Old Testament rather, uh, the Pentateuch, excuse me, establishes the following type, and I'll just quote him. Quote, What God will do for Israel, He will also do for the future King of Israel. Now, typology is a it's a good subject. It's really neat. There's is typology in the Bible, but you got to be careful because sometimes you can establish types and patterns that God didn't intend for you to to establish a type and pattern from. But he makes the argument, and I would agree that when he's talking about Hosea or Matthew quoting Hosea, remember the passage where it says, "Out of Egypt I called my son," right? People people get hung up on that, like, well, he's quoting that passage illegitimately, right? Because Hosea 11.1 is not about Jesus, it's about Israel. No, Matthew's not. Matthew's quoting it because he knows what Hosea knows, and Hosea knows that the Pentateuch deliberately established a type with Israel and Jesus. That... What God would do for Israel, He will do for Israel's Messiah. And we've retread this ground, but I want to show you this because I think it's important. Go to Numbers chapter 23 and 24. Numbers 23. Now this is in the context of Balaam's oracle. Remember Balaam, right? He rode on the talking donkey, right? He is hired by Balak to curse Israel, and God prevented him from doing it, and instead of cursing Israel, he blessed them, right? And so this is in the context of his oracles. 
Numbers 23, verses 21 through 24. Someone read that. Verse 24, too. Look, a people rises like a lioness and lifts itself up like a lion. It shall not lie down until it devours the prey and drinks the blood of the slain. Alright, brother, since you're there, I'm going to have you flip to Numbers 24. And keeping in mind what Balaam, a God through Balaam, just said, look at Numbers 24, verses 7 through 9. Read that for us, brother. He shall pour water from his buckets, and his seed shall be in many waters. His king shall be higher than Agag, and his kingdom shall be exalted. God brings him out of Egypt. He has strength like a wild ox. He shall consume the nations, his enemies. He shall break their bones and pierce them with his arrows. He bows down, he lies down as a lion. And as a lion, who shall rouse him? Blessed is he who blesses you, and cursed is he who curses you. You see that? You see the exact, in some places, the exact same words and phrases used of Israel and Israel's Messiah? Matthew quotes Hosea because he knows that Hosea has caught from numbers the fact that what God does for Israel, he does for their king. And I think that's kind of what's going on here. I think there's some of that at least in the temptation here. Jesus knows why he's being tempted. He knows that like Israel, he's being tested by God to reveal his character. And he's going through what his people went through. So he could succeed where they failed. Notice if we go back to Deuteronomy, Deuteronomy 8, look, look at this. Verse 3, right? And he humbled you, and look at that next phrase, and he what? Let you hunger. If there's anybody who can demand rights, it's Jesus. If there's anyone who can say, I'm the Son of God, I don't have to put up with this. But that's not the type of leader he is, is he? He's a servant. And he takes on, and I'm going to give you guys a quote in a second, that talks about the, the suffering and the trials of his people. He knows that God loves him. He knows what this test is about. God is letting him hunger to prove to this usurper and to everyone who would ever read these words exactly who he is and exactly what he's made of. Doug Bookman's noted, and David Smith wrote in his book, The Days of His Flesh, that Jesus never used his miraculous power for his advantage. David Smith says, in explaining why Jesus did not turn the stones into bread, let me quote him, of all the miracles which he wrought on the course of, in the course of his ministry, not one was wrought on his own behalf. His power, ever alert to the cry of others' need, slumbered when his own was great. His mission demanded this self-abnegation. Abnegation, excuse me. He had come to bear our load and drink our cup, and it was necessary that he should experience the uttermost of our woe, in order that he might be touched with the feeling of our infirmities. Had he exerted his miraculous power to save himself from suffering, 
He would have canceled that great act of self-renunciation, whereby he assumed our nature that he might dwell here, a man of sorrows and acquainted with grief. At every step of his progress through the world, he denied himself, resolutely sharing the woes which he had come to heal. You think about all the power that Christ had, and he never used it for his own selfish ends. Never. If we want something to look up to, there you go. Not that we would have such power as our Lord has. What did Jesus say to his disciples, right? The Gentiles, what? Lorded over them. Nobody's seen that in the news lately, have they? Um, But Jesus says, it's not so with you. They are to follow his lead. A man, though his power was great and his position is great, uses it to love his people and to give all that he has for them. Never snaps, never cracks. Any thoughts or, or comments on any of this? Yeah, Rob. I thought it was pretty cool how he was always telling his disciples, Oh, you of little faith. And then he revealed his power not to say, Hey, I got, or, you know, to uh, give them faith that he is who he says he is. Yeah, he does, right? He, he, yeah. he uses his divine power to bolster their faith. <laughs> Right when it's sagging and weakening. And, and Lord willing, when we get to some of the miracles, I, I hope that you're as blown away about it as I am. About how Jesus... Like, you might see... I was just looking at a, a list of the miracles. And, and they're amazing. But I think... I have to look at it more. I think they're skipping over passages like where Jesus would say that they brought the sick and He healed them all. Like just this kind of passing comment. And if you think about how widespread his miraculous work was, early in his ministry at least, how can anyone not believe him? How can anyone not see? So we'll, we'll get awed by that at the, the appropriate time. Um, any other comments, sir? Yeah, Robert. <laughs> Well, I think if we're talking about intertrinitarian relationships and, you know, is the Son eternally submissive to the Father, that is a big, hot theological potato that we need to, uh, don't have time to adequately uh, address here. But suffice to say, at least on this earth, when he is in, fl- when he's in his ministry as his Savior, he certainly submits, submits to the Father in, in all things, right? And he's led by the Spirit here. He is led by the Spirit. Any other uh, thoughts or comments? Yes, Michael. You know, just thinking about uh, Christ and, and his uh, temptation, he was tempted in all points as, as we are. You know, uh, we, we can encourage each other uh, in that, you know, we, we ourselves are tempted and failed. We understand uh, our weakness and, and we can encourage one another in that. But there's a, a greater encouragement in this. Not only was he tempted, but he also succeeded. Um, and, and that's a comfort for us because we're not saved by our, our own works, but we're saved by his perfect life. So uh, it's, it's just a, a great encouragement that you know he was so tempted and where we failed, he succeeded. Yeah. And I would say one, one thing you can kind of draw from it if we were to bring it out a little bit more. With the fact that Jesus succeeded, I think an application um, that I believe was, was made, and I'll just make it here, that there is always a way to succeed in a temptation. Right? First Corinthians 10, right? He won't let you be tempted beyond what you could bear, but will provide what? Wave escape. Now, a lot of us kind of slammed the door on the way of escaping. We're just like, no thanks. 
to God be the glory, He's merciful to us. But that, that might be something to consider, just thinking about Jesus succeeding and how that would link to the fact that there is always a way of escape for us. Oh, God, forgive us for not taking it. Say again? And involve the Word of God. Yeah, and involve the Word of God. Amen. Yeah, notice Jesus quotes the text in context. <laughs> and he uses the surrounding context and he uses the verse appropriately and applies it to himself because it's right for him. He's not resting the verse out of his context to use it for his own purposes. Jesus is a good exegete. Yes, John. Do you see a difference between testing and tempting? And because Israel in the text says test and here it's tempt. Do you see differences in that? Well, um, we mentioned before, like the word here can mean tempt and it can mean test. Just depending on when Jesus is tempted, it, it, could, it just depends on the context. Um, I think, again, I'll kind of go back to what I said before. I think Satan has a, a motive to tempt him, right? But I think God's, I think God's ultimate plan is to test, to actually prove who he really is. Right? Not, not just say, you know, he could, you know, I could say that he's my beloved son and, and we should just take that God all at his word for that, right? And we could look at all the Messianic prophecies and just kind of show as we go down the line from the Old to the New Testament, that's Him. But in the crucible, in this testing, it actually shows that, yeah, He is the Son of God. Um, to, give, to, to, to use an escape route, I guess, I'll just say it, it actually here, I think, probably could be both. That's Satan. And... It, um, I think the mo- at least the motive is very different. I think the motive can be different in testing and tempting, right? Well, and it, it's, yeah. it's the same. It's the same act. It, it yeah. is God's testing of him, um, and Satan is doing it with a purpose to get Christ to fail. Right. That's the temptation. God's purpose is to to prove him. Yeah. So, like, like um, with. With uh, in the Old Testament, Joseph, you meant it for evil, but God meant it for good. Yeah, that that's that's yeah, that's definitely that's been referenced, and it, it's it's true. You know, I guys who I uh, respect, like uh, Doug Bookman and Dwight Pentecost, talk about how you know Satan basically was trying to avoid this converta- con- confrontation. I don't. I think that's probably reading a little bit too much into the text. Um, I think Satan relished the opportunity. And he, he gave it his best shot to get him to fail. Right? And you, if you look at the end of, of Luke 4, the passage here where it talks about, you know, he waits for an opportune time. I mean, Satan looks like a hunter. Right? Waiting to strike when his prey is quote-unquote vulnerable. So in any case, any other thoughts or comments before we move on? All right, temptation number two. Um, Luke has this last. Matthew has the second. Again, I think I think Matthew's got the chronological order here. Let's um, let's look at the temptation. So uh, Matthew four verses five through um, six. So somebody read that for us. Matthew four five through six, and I'll need to flip the slide. So if you're reading off of it, go ahead, sir. Then the devil took him to the holy city and set him on the pinnacle of the temple and said to him, If you are the Son of God, throw yourself down, for it is written, He will command his angels concerning you, and on their hands they will bear you up, lest you strike your foot against the stone. All right, would somebody read uh, Luke's uh, recount of it? Um, I need to actually turn there here. Here we go. Verses 9 through 11. And he took him to Jerusalem and set him on the pinnacle of the temple and said to him, If you are the Son of God, throw yourself down from here. For it is written, He will command His angels concerning you to guard you. And on their hands they will bear you up, lest you strike the foot against the stone. Thank you. Thank you. Okay. 
So what's some observations we can make? Alright, so, Satan takes Jesus up to the pinnacle of the temple in Jerusalem. So now all of a sudden, Jesus is in Jerusalem. Now, I suppose you could kind of just say that, you know, I guess maybe some people might make the argument that like it was kind of like a vision and Jesus wasn't actually there. Um, I would tend to kind of take this at, I would kind of take this to mean that Jesus is actually there. And he's at the temple. Unless there's something in the text that would compel me, right, to read this otherwise. That Jesus and Satan are now at the pinnacle of the temple. All right. What's Satan do here to change strategy? He quotes scripture. And all of his false ministers do the same. You know, the God's holy ones are not the only ones who use scripture for their effect, for their own purposes. Satan does so too. Let's turn to Psalm 91. Psalm 91, verses 11 through 12. Now Psalm 91, this entire psalm discusses how Yahweh the Most High will protect those who trust Him and seek His protection. And as in the first temptation, you'll notice here, he says, if you are the Son of God. Perhaps maybe we should interpret this as as sins. Maybe. Now, Psalm 91, 11 through 12. Now, Satan uh, quotes this pretty well. Uh, let's just read it again. Psalm 91, 11 through 12. Somebody read that. I was thinking about this um, for your own consideration. I think so. Uh, I know at least one place that I, I read talked about this psalm being basically messianic. That might be true, um, but I think maybe Satan here might be making an argument from the lesser to the greater. Like if if the person who seeks refuge in Yahweh. Right? If he promises that he'll command his angels concerning this person, right? So that they, so that, um, to guard them, and on their hands they'll bear you up. Like, if God will promise that for just some typical God follower in the Old Testament, Israelite, proselyte, what have you, how much more will he do that for his own son? You see the point? Right? And if Satan's doing that, if, it's kind of like, in and of itself, if you're not considering anything else, it makes logical sense, doesn't it? If that's true, that God will protect those who trust in Him, then of course He's going to protect His own Son. Interestingly enough, I wonder if Satan's cherry-picking these verses, because he didn't quote verse 13, if you just take a look at that. I wonder why he didn't quote verse 13. <laughs> Treading on adders. That, that, that's one of those verses he's like, yeah, I'm going to skip that one. Um, but Satan can use Scripture to his, own, to his own twisted advantage, can't he? And he's still doing it. And there are hundreds and hundreds and hundreds of places of Locations that will meet today in which he will have a servant of his get up behind a pulpit and do it. Satan might change his playbook a little bit, but he, he's got kind of a basic foundational structure going on. Now, Alfred Edersheim in his book, uh, The Life and Times of Jesus the Messiah, notes, uh, quote, Jesus stands on the lofty pinnacle of the tower. Or, the, or of the temple porch, presumably that on which every day a priest was stationed to watch. As the pale morning light passed over the hills of Judea, far off to Hebron, to announce it as the signal for offering the morning sacrifice. End quote. And then he goes on later on to talk about how he kind of he even uses the word imagination, 
But he kind of imagines that Jesus is on the, the, the temple there and how basically he'd be descending to the crowd and to the crowd of the people and the priests after the morning sacrifice. And basically the temptation is for him to descend to them and he'd be received with worship. Now he's kind of reading into it somewhat, I think, but that is something to consider because the priests do have, I mean the temple, excuse me, does usually have a group of people there. And if he's right, you could see you could see a part of the temptation for Jesus to be received, like if he were to throw himself off, right, and God were to take his angels to catch him. I mean, that would be that'd be some sign, wouldn't it? That'd be some sign, everyone, to say, "Oh, here's the Messiah. Look, you know, look what God did for him. Let's let's worship him." You could see the appeal. Maybe there's something to that. Let's look at Jesus' response, though, because I, I think Jesus, again, he quotes a passage and he goes even deeper into Old Testament history, I think, to, to kind of see how, let's see how Jesus tackles this. Let's read Matthew 4 7 and Luke 4 12. What's Matthew 4 7 say? Let's just read it, right? Jesus said to him, Again it is written, You shall not put the Lord your God to the test. And then Luke 4, verse 12. And Jesus answered him, It is said, You shall not put the Lord your God to the test. Now, what passage... Well, I'm, I'm jumping ahead. No, actually, we'll go there. Um, what's some observations we can make about Jesus' response to the second temptation? Well, he quotes Scripture again, doesn't he? He quotes Deuteronomy 6.16. Let's turn there. Deuteronomy 6.16. Alright. Someone read Deuteronomy 6.16 for us. Thank you. Thank you, brother. You shall not put your Lord, your God, to your test as you tested Him at Massa. Here's the question. What's Massa? What's he talking about? Um, that is, no, but that's good. Let's, we're going to go there. I'm not going to keep us hanging. We're going to go there. But you see, the point is, it's like, you know, Moses is recalling this story, and I know we can't, we don't have like superhuman knowledge of every place in the Old Testament, right? But it helps for us to know what happened previously. So we have context of what's going on here. It, it does involve water. Let's turn there. Deuteronomy 17. Deuteronomy 17. Because here's the thing. Jesus, I believe, quotes Deuteronomy 6.16. And he's using the context. And I even think that he's calling back to Massa here to show why, to show really what Satan's doing here, what's going on, how he's tempting and what the temptation is, and how you should really respond. So Jesus, again, is going back not only to the context of Deuteronomy 6.16, but going to the context of Exodus 17 and pulling from that. So Exodus 17, verses 1 through 7. To refresh our memories, let's have somebody read that. Exodus 17, 1 through 7. All right, I will. All the congregation of the people of Israel moved on from the wilderness of sin. That's a great name. Um, by stages, according to the commandment of the Lord, and camped at Rephidim. But there was no water for the people to drink. Therefore the people quarreled with Moses and said, Give us water to drink. And Moses said to them, Why do you quarrel with me? Why do you test the Lord? But the people thirsted there for water. And the people grumbled against Moses and said, Why did you bring us up out of Egypt? To kill us and our children and our livestock with thirst? So Moses cried out to the Lord, What shall I do with these people? They are almost ready to stone me. 
And the Lord said to Moses, Pass on before the people, taking with you some of the elders of Israel, and take in your hand the staff with which you shall strike the Nile, and go. Behold, I will stand before you there on the rock at Horeb, and you shall strike the rock, and water shall come out of it, and the people will drink. And Moses did so in the sight of the elders of Israel. Now, I'll stop here for a moment. Okay. This is this passage recalls early in the wilderness wanderings of Israel. I mean, they just left Egypt not too long before this. And directly after, this is directly after, both in the Torah and I think probably in the timeline, directly after God gave them manna. Isn't that interesting? That Jesus quote that Jesus quotes a passage which goes back to this story, which happens in the timeline right after manna, which the passage he quoted just before this went back to. At least three other Old Testament passages reference this event. So it is is important. If you're interested, it's it's referenced in Deuteronomy nine twenty two, uh, Deuteronomy thirty three eight, and then Psalm ninety five verse eight. But let's look at how the passage ends. Let's go to verse 7, back in Exodus 17. And he called the name of the place Massa and Meribah, because of the quarreling of the people of Israel, and because they tested the Lord by saying, Is the Lord among us or not? It seems that Jesus is interpreting casting himself off of the temple as the equivalent of testing his father to see if he's truly present with him. And again, Jesus, being the good exegete, using Scripture in context, goes back to an Old Testament passage which references this passage and he sees an equivalency there. That he's tested the same way, well, not exactly the same way, because there it was it was water, his was you know casting himself off the temple, but the underlying idea is the same. Israel, because they thirst, wonder, is God with us or not? Satan telling Jesus to throw himself off of the temple would be equivalent to asking, God, are you with me or not? Here. I'm going to throw myself off to see if you really are. And Jesus says, I know this game. I've seen this show before. And he rebuffs him. You do not put the Lord your God to the test. Any questions or, or thoughts about that? It's interesting You know, he knows his father's with him. Even through his hour of trial, he doesn't need a sign to prove it. You could say Jesus here walks by faith and not by sight. Any thoughts or comments on the second temptation here? Yeah, that, that's the way sin. That's the way sin is, though, right? That when you sin, and then you try to, you just keep piling it and piling it and piling it. Satan, every second of every day, is heaping more condemnation on himself. There could be. There could be an underlying... I mean, you know, the temptation could be kind of multifaceted, right? I know uh, I had a quote. We're going to get to it next week, the final temptation, because we're right at about a time. 
But I know uh, Dwight Pentecost in his book on the life of Christ, and I know I'm sure others have said that basically the idea here is that, and I believe this to be case, the third temptation here, the crux of it, just to kind of give us a preview, is that for Jesus to get the kingdoms of the world without the cross. That's the thing. And yeah, maybe this with the second too, I mean, it'd be really easy, right? Um, I think even Edersheim, I think maybe Edersheim points that basically out too, that, you know, to th- that he would accomplish the goal of throwing himself off the temple without the cross. The cross is not plan B. Never, never, never. It is before the foundation of the world God predestined this to happen. It must go through it. And Satan tries whatever he can to keep Jesus from that cross. Remember? He even used, however indirectly, one of Jesus' most beloved disciples to try to get him off the road, didn't he? Yeah, brother, you were saying... That's excellent, yes. Uh, and then the other thing is, I've always heard this talk more about um, suicide. Is that bad, um, I guess, exegete, or is that taking things too far with some things? Because Satan obviously is always around death, right? <laughs> <laughs> and But when you're talking about this, that doesn't even seem to even... I don't think so. Um, I, I, yeah, I mean, I, I don't think so. Maybe I'm missing something, but it, yeah. That's good, though. Any other thoughts or comments before we close out for today? And next week we'll get to a lot of these passages I threw up here on the on the board. All right, let's pray. Heavenly Father, I thank you very much for these men. And for your word, I thank you in the temptations that we've read today that uh, Jesus uses scripture masterfully. And I pray, Father, that you would help us to um, follow his lead in, in this way. I thank you, Lord, that you show his victory even among intense suffering. I pray, Father, that you would encourage us that ultimately we will be victorious because of your son, even though we undergo immense suffering. Pray that you would bless our time now as we transition into worship together as a congregation. Open our hearts so we may behold wonderful things in your word. In Jesus' name, amen. Amen.